Hey guys, welcome back to the Detours Podcast. I'm Bill Wheeler, and our show is brought to you by Blackbeard Media, with support from our friends at the Pulitzer Center. This week, my partner Jason Motlog sat down with Andrew Quilty in Kabul. Andrew is an Australian freelance photographer who's been based in Afghanistan since late 2013. His clients include the New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, Time, and Harper's. In 2016, he won a George Polk Award for his coverage of a deadly U.S. airstrike on a Doctors Without Borders clinic in the northern city of Kunduz. Jason caught up with Andrew in the Afghan capital in a house he shares with another journalist and an adopted mutt. Kabul is not a safe place these days, and a lot of foreigners shuttle around town in helicopters, which you'll hear thumping above. Andrew still rides his motorcycle. Thanks for having me. Um, Andrew's been here since December 2013, so quite a while now. Yeah. Four years. And um, I just wanted to first ask you, you know, that was a time when NATO forces were already on their way out, drawing down. A lot of the media attention had gone elsewhere. Was that calculated for you to come here at that time, or did things just work out that way? No, it wasn't calculated at all. It was, um, I mean... When I first came here, I planned to stay two weeks. I had a, I had a ticket booked for two weeks. I kind of thought I'll get in, take a few pictures, get out, and then you know I can say I've been to Afghanistan. I've worked in Afghanistan, and um, you know, very um, you know, tick a very sort of superficial box in my career. <laughs> um, I um, I'm not proud of proud of that sort of entree into into a place like this now. But um, as it turned out, I um, the the country really grew on me, and the the story did. And um, it also happened to be at a point in the in the media environment here where it was it was viable for someone like me who didn't have any experience in in conflict zones, um, um, but who was, you know, kind of open to the, the prospect of, of working here and, and staying here semi-long-term. And um, so that, on top of the fact that I, you know, really grew to love the place and um, loved working here and um, found a fulfilment in work that I didn't know was even possible before, um, um, combined to, you know, see me here today, you know, nearly four years later. You were saying that last night we were talking that uh, you felt like you kind of jumped in late into this, this line of work. What had you been doing in the years before you got here? I'd, um, I'd started my career in Australia, in Sydney. I um, kind of fell into a, with a crowd of documentary style photographers, newspaper photographers. Um, I worked I worked at a, um, a metropolitan newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, um, back at a time when there was a very vibrant um, uh, culture of, of photography at the newspaper and there were a lot of, um, a lot of the photographers there were um, doing incredible work and being recognised internationally for it. That sort of slowly started to dwindle as the um, you know, the international 
media um, industry started to decline, or the print media, I should say. Um, and so I sort of s slowly started to um, find my way out of that. I, I went freelance first, and then um, and started working for some international publications. And then I thought, well, these are the these are the people I want to be working for. So stupidly, I thought, well, I need to go to the place where these publications are based. So I need to go to New York. So I went to New York thinking that that's where I would work for, you know, the, these newspapers and magazines that I aspired to work for. And I spent 18 months, you know, scrapping for any shitty, you know, business job I could get with the times and, you know, getting paid 200 bucks a day for, you know, a portrait of, you know, Joe Smith in his, you know, office in Dumbo or whatever. And, um, and, you know, I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is it. Like, so, you know, I'd, I'd get a job, you know, once a month for the times. And I think, oh yeah, this is what I want to be doing. And, and then a friend of mine, um, uh, from back in Sydney was um, planning a trip to Afghanistan and Iraq and she asked me if I knew any photographers in the in the region that she could work with and without really thinking too much about it I, I just said I'll, I'll come with you um, and so I did and um, uh, yeah that was, that was kind of it it's very um, it wasn't something I thought a lot about and um, planned very spur of the moment so very spontaneous no a little. I mean, I I had some contact with editors um, by that point, um, and um, I think when you say to editors that you're going to a place like Afghanistan, um, you're taken a little bit more seriously than if you're, you know, just one of the thousands of emails ending up in an inbox saying I'm here based in New York, you know, if you need me, I'm here. It's like, well, join the back of the very long queue. Yeah, yeah, very good company. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really stumbled my way to Afghanistan, really. It was very um, haphazard and, um, you know, I could look at it as a, um, uh, you know, wasted decade almost but I suppose um, I've never been much of a one for planning so yeah. heavy on the atmospherics today just so <laughs> listeners know those are uh, choppers that are shuttling what embassy personnel to and from the airport I don't think that one was but yeah that's okay. that's a lot of the traffic here for so the We'll be hearing a lot of that, just so you know what's going on. Yeah, yeah that's are, that's your uh, taxpayer dollars that you can hear. Yeah. And you arrived in Kunduz in September 2015, shortly after it fell for the first time. What were you seeing? How intense was the fighting at that time? It was, I mean, this is a good example of um, a... Um, an Afghan embed, so I was up there on the brigade headquarters and we're under the, I was there with a, a colleague and, a, and an Afghan um, fixer and the um, public affairs officer on the headquarters up there was just, uh, I mean, he, he was an arsehole really, <laughs> he was a lazy arsehole, he didn't want to do his job, he didn't want to, um, you know, anything we asked him was um, too much effort and... Um, I think he was probably under pressure from his um, 
you know, from the generals not to let us see too much. So, um, I mean, we'd have to drag him kicking and screaming to take us out out of the um, headquarters into into the city and, you know, to see anything at all. But um, it was really a, a very frustrating period. Like, while the, the battle for the city was ongoing, we were kind of trapped in a... In a you know, heavily fortified um, army army base, a few kilometres from the from where the fighting was going on. I mean, we could we could hear it, but it was a long way away. And um, it was only when uh, my colleague, who happened to speak Russian, um, <laughs> made friends with a with a um, a less senior commander up there, who happened to be um, going out um, on a mission one day, who basically um said why don't you you know jump in so we literally we happened to have all our gear with us we jumped in the back of the truck and um and he took us to the front line and um within a kilometer or two of the city which was where the um the msf trauma center which had been um bombed by an american ac-130 about a week prior um was so and that, that was kind of our our target for the the week to try and get to the hospital and see what had happened and um, um, document anything that we could Not, nothing had come out from the hospital since it had happened um, so that was our sort of main mission and, the, and this um, this uh, combat mission got us as close as um, we were going to get and from there I um, kind of managed to um, wrangle a a local um, MSF driver who was still in the in the city to come and you know collect me from um, this uh, Afghan army unit that I was with and, and take me into into town. But that was, I mean, that that's how difficult it was to get anything done. I literally we literally had to slip out of the out of the base with a sympathetic commander, and then I had to slip away from him. So it was, it's you know certainly um, not by the book, but I guess you know you you do what you have to do to get what you need. You ultimately get into this MSF trauma center and you take this picture of this uh, father of four who'd been getting treated there and was hit and killed by shrapnel while um, on a hospital bed. And uh, you took this, this picture of it reverberated around the world. Uh, had you heard about this man at the trauma center or was it just just something that you stumbled upon when you got there? No, I mean, I was going in blind. It was, um, as I said, there was no, um, there was no reporting coming out of, um, oh, there was a little bit coming out from Kunduz, but no one had gained access to the hospital itself. So, um, no one really knew what the situation was in there. Um, so I went in there, there was a couple of MSF staff who had, you know, kind of gallantly stayed behind to, um, guard the premises and, um, they opened the gate for me and, um, you know, as there was, you know, fighting going on a couple of blocks away and um you know this the smell was you could, there was obviously still human remains in there it was um um the smell was um strong evidence of that and um um but i you know i i had this um i you know i managed to get this access and um so i i kind of just um went in and and very forensically i suppose made my way through the hospital and you know just as if i was gathering evidence just photographed every single room um 
you know, sort of stood in the middle of each room and, and pivoted around and photographed as I went. And, um, and you know, every, every few rooms there was a, 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 there were human remains, you know, um, what I could, um, only recognize as human remains because of the, you know, the flies and the smell that were buzzing around them. A lot of them were completely disfigured and just real, you know, like lumps of flesh. Yeah, it had been a week. And so, I mean, it was, um, I suppose the only reason that they were still there was because that the fighting had continued and no one had been able to um, uh, safely access the hospital and retrieve the, the dead. Um, uh, yeah, and then uh, as I came towards the, uh, I'd already spent far longer than I wanted to spend in there. The, it was a, it's a big hospital, I think, there were probably 100 rooms or something. And um, you know, trying to make my way through there without, you know, banging my head on, you know, falling ceilings or treading on unexploded ordnance as there was, which I, you know, was a kind of afterthought. But um, um, after about an hour and fifteen minutes, I got to the um, the operating theatres, which were less affected than the um, than the uh, main wings of the hospital, and. Um, yeah, so inside it was you know it was very dark. I took a minute for my, a couple of seconds for my eyes to adjust, and there was this um, this very intact human figure outstretched on the um, on the operating table. Still, you know, had his arms strapped in and um, had the X fix, you know, steel brace on his on his leg that was being was to be removed. I later found out, um, and. Um, the only thing that was amiss, apart from a few small shrapnel wounds, was that half his head had been sheared off, obviously by some um, sh- shrapnel from a, a missile that had come in and, and exploded. Um, and um, there was no um, there was no other you know evidence of what had uh, what what the circumstances were. I mean, like exactly what had happened to him. Um, the, as far as I knew, no one else had been injured in that in that operating theatre. But um, yeah, as I um, after a couple of weeks, I slowly was able to put the pieces together and um, find out a bit a bit about this um, this man by Nazar and the circumstances of the, that evening and his his family, how he ended up in the hospital, being operated on, and um, and the doctors and surgeons that were operating on him. Um, and yeah, met, met his family and his his um, four children and his wife, um, and um, yeah, was kind of able to piece together his last um, his last days, and then uh, you know a bit about his a bit about his life, and um, and I suppose the what lay in wait for the um, especially the, the children and, and his um, wife who was left behind. Who was Bonazar? He was a, you know, he was a regular Afghan, um, poor, um, uneducated. He worked as a unarmed security guard at a local bazaar. Um, he had lived with his family in Iran for a time, um, for um, because he couldn't find work in in Afghanistan. But he wanted to, um, he wanted to raise his children in, in Afghanistan, where he was from. So they came back um, a few years prior. And, um, yeah, he found this job at a, at a local bazaar, um, which was 
where he had been visiting when he was um, injured in Kunduz um, a couple of days prior to that hospital attack. Um, he'd gone to check on the bazaar. He'd heard that there were people looting um, the, the stores that he was responsible for, so he just went to check up on them, although they were closed. And um, uh, when he, he got there, there, were, um, there was a Taliban um, contingent there, and they told him to go home, that it was too dangerous, there was fighting, and... As he did make his way home, he was he was shot by, um, you know, some crossfire. He wasn't even sure who who it came from, but um, he was shot in the leg and taken to the hospital, um, operated on straight away, and um, he'd spent a day recovering. And when the hospital came under attack, he was um, midway through a second operation, which was to seal his wound, and he probably would have been out of hospital the following day or the day after that. Mm. When your photographs came out, they made waves. Um, you know, what ultimately came of that? Was the family compensated? And did you, did the photographs have the, the impact that you had anticipated? No. I don't think they ever do. Um, the family was compensated in, you know, the, the clinical um, prescribed manner that the... Um, that the Americans have, um, you know, um, legislated for. I mean, what I think, like? I think uh, it was six thousand U.S. dollars for um, for yeah, for a life. Um, Three thousand dollars for those who were injured in the in an attack like that. Um, so, I mean, no, there's there's been very little. Um, substantial redress for that um for what happened there that day i think um you know there's been internal investigations and um 18 uh military people have been um you know been given some form of punishment certainly no um no uh, prison time or um any um criminal um charges but um, some sort of administrative um, punishment, I guess you'd say. And, um, and I think, you know, from an Afghan perspective, it's, it so quickly um, fell from the, from the headlines as it was usurped by, you know, one after another after another um, security incident. Um, you know, this is just, that's like a, I mean, the fact that it was a, a hospital is made it somewhat exceptional, but you know, the, these kind of incidents, um, innocent civilians um, being caught up is, you know, a daily occurrence here. And, um, and I think the other uh, complexity was that um, I think in Afghanistan, the, um, the distinction that um, maybe for you and I is, um, is, is, is black and white, um, for a people who have been so caught up in conflict and um, um, the idea of impartiality, um, which is what an organisation like MSF operates on, um, that, they, that they assist um, injured patients regardless of their um, political or um, armed affiliations. I think that concept here is almost anathema and I think um, so it, it it meant that sympathy for that imp that incident 
was um, far less than um, than was the impact that it had on on you know people like myself or um, or MSF. And civilians are dying at a greater rate than than ever before now. I mean, does it does it sometimes feel futile as a photographer, as a journalist, going out trying to capture? The ordinary suffering of, of Afghans, and you know, finding a way to make it resonate outside the country. Definitely, I think um, the more this this uh, conflict spirals downhill, it's um, it makes me think more and more carefully about um, how worthwhile taking risks to document it is. It's um, I think. When there's when there's hope, um, to use another cliche, there's um, it's a good um, uh, you know it gives you impetus to go out and um, try and like contribute to this um, to the momentum or to uh, you know yeah to the upward momentum of a country. But when it's constantly, even if only gradually. Um, on the decline, it's um, it's it's harder to to find that um, that motivation. Certainly, yeah. Now, more recently, there's this added threat of the Islamic State here in Afghanistan, which has just further complicated things. I know you've been doing a lot of work along the eastern border with Pakistan, as thousands of refugees are being forced back into Afghanistan from these camps in Pakistan. How difficult has that story been to pursue and, and why are you continuing to pursue it? Yeah, I, I mean, the uh, story in the East is, is so complex. There's just so many layers to it. It's, I mean, it's like a, again, it's, um, it's kind of like a, a microcosm of, of broader Afghanistan. You know, yeah, you've got like all these armed factions, and then you've got on top of that um, Pakistan pushing out refugees who have been staying there for you know as long as forty years um, into you know one of the most conflict-ridden provinces or um, regions in the country. So you've got um, you know like hundreds of thousands of people displaced into um, into this region that's um, you know being contested by you know. Well, basically, three um, heavily armed you know, factions, and there's uh, all the problems that go along with that. There's, you know, the economy's down the drain. There's no jobs, and um, you know, it's it's a it's a rife environment for um, recruiting um, fighters. Um, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's partic- it's very difficult to cover because access is. You know, fraught with all the um, obvious uh, risks, um, the roads are um, often uh, littered with you know checkpoints for um, Taliban checkpoints, which makes it hard to get to um, you know get to where you need to go. Um, again, the, um, the the factor of time and the difficulty of um, you know, extended exposure in any places is um, exacerbated there because um, 
it's it's so unusual to to see a, a foreigner or a, you know someone with a, a camera in these parts that um, as soon as you're there, everyone knows, and it's um, you've got to start thinking about your um, your exit straight away. So it's um, again, it's like you know a matter of making these kind of quick hit and run missions, staying very low profile. Um, not heralding your um, your plans, um, you know, not not getting out of the cars to take, you know, selfies on the tanks on the side of the road, um, and um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I guess it's just become normal for me now, like working under those um, under all those constraints and and compromising in a way what you um, what you're able to achieve and. Um, I suppose um, you're able to to learn a lot, a lot more um, academically and through interviews and things um, by by talking to people either by phone or somewhere that's secure um, where you can have people come to you. But for um, pictures, it's um, yeah, it's a it's a struggle. Yeah. We've also seen the shift where you know, the Taliban was primarily focusing on the government military as, as far as targets now you're seeing the Islamic State you know, go after demonstrators, students you know, there's this attack at the American University mm-hmm. in Kabul um, how is that changing your calculus in the way you work? Uh, it, it's still been um, a while since there's been a, a targeted attack on um Foreign journalists, or um, or even uh, you know foreigners outside the um, outside of military roles, but it's certainly um, I mean it's always at the um, in the back of your mind. Um, again, I, I just follow those same rules that have always applied here. You know, limiting exposure in your footprint. Um, you know, I've, I've started to get around on a motorcycle rather than um, in, in cars and taxis just for the mobility and for the um, anonymity that's afforded with a, a um, you know, helmet and, and, the, um, and the, the mobility. Um, and um, I guess that's it. What would you say to you know, young journalists who's hearing this right now and thinking, okay, Afghanistan, there's of a media vacuum there, you know, I want to make that jump yeah. and get into conflict photography and, you know, work in uh, a country of war. Uh, what, what guidance would you give them knowing what you've, you know, know now, what you've been through? I mean, if professionally, I, th- I hate to, you know, put it in those terms, but Afghanistan has been good for me. I mean, I, the timing... Um, was you know primarily responsible for that I guess um, like you said there was there is somewhat of a, a vacuum here uh, I suppose that's also because there's a bit of a vacuum in interest in Afghanistan after 16 years you know and with everything else that's going on in the world um, it's you know it's it's um, oftentimes feels as though the place is forgotten and I, you know with the recent um, U.S. election campaign. You know, I think you can count on one hand the number of times that the that Afghanistan was even mentioned. And um, having said that, um, it's undeniably a, 
a compelling ongoing story that shows no sign of um of letting up anytime soon um and i think you know there's a a great tradition of um of photojournalists here um so i mean we were looking at the this um tome of a book by Stephen DuPont who's you know a fellow Australian and a friend of mine from back home and someone who um, has encouraged me here and who um, you know I guess subconsciously inspired me to come here and work here um, so I I mean I would encourage it with um, uh, you know with with um, some strong you know, reservations and, and, um, and with, um, you know, on the, on the proviso that you, I mean, you can't, the problem here is coming here as a, um, as a, a youngster or someone who's inexperienced or doesn't have the media connections. It's hard to do anything here cheaply. You know, you can't just buy a bicycle and go and start working. You need, I mean, you need, translators and you need um um a network who can who you can rely on to tell you what to do and what not to do and um and you can't just stay in a a, a backpack as you know there's maybe one hotel or one place you can stay in in each provincial capital and um you can't be as spontaneous, you can't be spontaneous at all really here. I think you know, everything requires planning and um, I think it's something that you notice when um, when you do get uh, journalists that come here afresh and and are a bit um, haphazard with their, um, the way they operate. It's, it's really kind of frowned upon amongst the, the press corps here and, um, you know, it's something that everyone takes very seriously and um, um, I think you you need to rely on your, your personality and your ability to um, befriend um, people that you know you need to you need to be able to call on and rely on for information and um, contacts and um, How's your diary in Pashto? Terrible. Are you working on it or? Oh, I've got lots of excuses, but I mean, the, I think it was by virtue of the fact that I, you know, was always extending my my time here without ever knowing that I it would accumulate to three years or four years, um, and I mean that is, if I started again, there you go, you've, yeah, you've answered a question for me. That would be a first priority to really embed myself in in language classes. Um, I think that's invaluable and something that's very frustrating, but something that I feel like I'm too far into to start now and, you know, too close to maybe leaving to bother with starting now. And I'm sort of, I've got my, I form my habits and I'm comfortable with them now, but, um, certainly if I started again, that would be a, something I would change. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've had a you know, really good run here. Um, what do you, what do you say to people and say, Hey, you, know, you should have been back here and 2008, 2009, the so-called good old days. What do you tell them? Um, no, I actually don't get that all that much. I think um, I think you, um, when people talk about the the glory days, it's I think they're referring more to the 
the, the expat scene in Kabul than they are about the, the story itself, which, I mean, I guess that um, they go hand, hand in hand. There was more of a, um, a bigger media presence here back in the, you know, the mid-2000s um, because of the number of... Um, because of the commitment that um, you know foreign governments had made here, and and it was um, far more visible back where we're from, um, I th- and I think that um, it's a um, it's it's always proportional. the The amount of um, international interest is dependent on the um, international commitment to a country, which now is relatively low. I mean, it's ten percent of what it was. Um, in you know two thousand nine, ten, eleven, you know. Um, uh, so um, I've lost my train of thought, but um, I, I mean, it doesn't. I, I'm here now. It doesn't really. Um, and and you know, despite what I've said and what I feel like has been a tone of complete pessimism, I love working here. I love living here. Just. Um, yeah, something is. Uh, you know, sometimes it's it, you need to look hard for it. But um, I do love working here, and um, so I mean, it's it's kind of irrelevant that um, you know the the glory days. Of course, I'd I'd be curious, but to be honest, I'd be I'd I'm more curious about the times um, before 2001. I'd love to have been here during um, the time of Ahmed Shah Massoud, and um, you know the. Um, the decades of that 80s and 90s that um, that really um, kind of built the foundations of where we are today and and you know all the problems of today that were um, that were kind of uh, constructed you know in part by um, you know foreign powers in large part by foreign powers um, um, yeah back in the 80s and 90s and um, I think, uh, yeah, that, that's, I'm more curious about that time. It sounds like you're sort of on the, the far side of your, your tour here. Uh, what goals do you still want to accomplish as a, as a photographer? Are there, are there long-term projects that you're, you're trying to wrap up? I mean, the, the, the glaring omission from my body of work here is, um, is from the other side of the war, the, the Taliban, the insurgency, which is, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's blindingly obvious to me. And I don't know if it's something I will be able to accomplish. Um, I think that, um, the idea of doing embeds on that side of the conflict now is, you know, fraught with, I mean, it's, it was always fraught with risk, but I think now that the Taliban, the insurgency is so much more fragmented than it ever has been, that it's very hard to, um, trust anyone i mean government or or taliban and um so that that's uh that remains to be seen whether i can um overcome that um certainly i'm you know there's parts of the country that i haven't been to yet that i'd like to like to get to um and um i mean i being a, a a man there's um you know half the population which is is very um it's not altogether off limits but w- what i can conceive of that um of the female half of afghanistan is is extremely limited and um and um uh, you know what i do see of it is um is 
I mean, it's never spontaneous. It's always um, under the watch of a of a male guardian, or um, so I can. I mean, the, there are certainly limits here um, with what you can achieve, especially as a foreigner, especially as a as a man. Um, not that I would have um, any. Um, not that I'd have greater entree if I was a if I was a woman, but um, you know what I'm saying. I. Um, so yes, there are a number of things, and some of them I think I will simply have to write off because they're not um, achievable. But um, I'll still keep pushing. Yeah. Hey, this is Bill back in the studio. A couple weeks after we interviewed Andrew in Kabul, a truck bomb exploded in the heart of the city, killing over 150 people and wounding more than 300. It may be the deadliest attack since the U.S.-led invasion in 2001, and Andrew was there to photograph the aftermath. We asked him to send us a brief audio diary about his experience that day, and the impact it's had on Afghan and foreign journalists alike. I was in the office of the International Rescue Committee, which is just a short walk uh, from my place in Kabul. Um, I was about to set out on a day's work photographing Afghan refugees recently returned from Pakistan, um, I mean, it felt like an earthquake, uh, you know, a, a split second of an earthquake. Um, and it was closely followed by a, a big, deep boom. Uh, got out on the street, looked to the sky, and, you know, I could see this big, um, you know, what had been a, a mushroom cloud that had kind of dispersed in the, the minutes we'd been um, underground. And, and basically just started running for it. Um, I didn't know how far it was. I thought by the look of it, it was maybe, you know, five or six blocks away. Um, of course, the further I ran, the, the more I realized it was, it was further than that. It just happened to be um, a particularly big cloud of smoke um, that was, you know, de- deceiving. Um, so I ran and I ran. Um, I, um, at one stage, I tried to jump on the back of a bicycle um, of a guy who was riding in the same direction until he you know, pointed to his front tire, which was flat and said, sorry, I can't take you. And I jumped in a taxi, um, you know, quickly got caught in traffic. I jumped out, um, you know, paid him a couple of bucks and jumped out and, and kept running. Um, and I, I got to a, um, a hospital run by a, another international NGO, which is, is widely recognized as the kind of premier, um, hospital for war wounded in, in not only in Kabul, but in the country. Um, and it was pretty chaotic out the front. There were, um, already ambulances and, and police vehicles, um, dropping off wounded and, and the like, and, and big crowds congregating out the front. I suppose this was 10 minutes after, after the blast. Um, um, but I, at this stage, I really, I, I wanted to, um, get to the site or get as close to the site as I could. I knew I could return to the hospital, which is often the, you know, the way thing, the way we, you know, operate as, as journalists in these cases, it's, um, you know, you, you visit the site and then you, um, uh, go to the, go to hospitals afterwards when, once, um, once the, the site has been locked down, but, um, so I, I pressed on. It was only a couple more blocks um, to where police had begun cordoning off the the area. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's um, it's always a you know, very chaotic, tense 
um, environment around you know surrounding these these sites and in, in the immediate aftermaths and I so it's really a matter of um, kind of forcing your way through um, to the you know to a to a point where you're not interfering um, but that you're able to um, undertake your you know your role as a as a journalist as a photographer and and um, you know get as close as you can and um, it, it's quite rare in Kabul to be able to um, get to these incidents um, you know within a, an amount of time that allows you to really um, document the the impact and the the devastation the, the immediate devastation you know it's, it's a big city and the traffic traffic is heavy so unless you're within you know really within um, walking distance or, or running distance as was the case um, in this instance it's almost not worth it so um, I mean I realized that this was a, a case where I, I was relatively close and um, so I basically um, you know I didn't even talk my way through these checkpoints I basically waited until you know the the police um, policeman um, at any given moment you know was distracted by something else and I'd, and I'd push past him and and um, you know this happens you know on several occasions within you know a hundred or a couple of hundred meters and um, I um, you know I, I realized I was I, I hadn't seen any other press there um, I, I Finally, I um, came across um, another colleague, a, a Reuters photographer, who had evidently um, gotten there bef- before I had, and, and um, I, I later realised had you know taken, I suppose the um, the, the iconic picture, um, if it's not too sort of soon to say that fr- from the from the blast um, of a man, um, I was you know quite. Um, yeah, I found it actually quite uncomfortable to look at this picture of this um, a victim of the blast who who was you know, looking down the barrel of the camera, kind of pleading for help. Um, but that was you know well after the fact. Um, so I, I got um, I got to the the point where there was um, you know a couple of dozen um, intelligence uh, members of the the Afghan intelligence service, the um, national directorate of security, um, and a, and a fire engine that was dousing some of the, the blown out and, um, blazing vehicles. Um, and, you know, I kept sort of shuffling forward, trying not to be noticed, taking some pictures and then getting pushed back and pushed back. And, you know, these guys are, um, tense and on edge and, um, you know, uh, probably, um, with you know um, itchy trigger fingers at this point, the, uh, often these attacks are followed up by um, armed insurgents coming in with um, you know to kind of finish off the finish off the job. And so um, there I was, I, and I basically just stayed around um, shooting whatever I could um, until the point, and I knew it would come that I was you know um, forced out of there and. Um, um, I'd, I'd taken a couple of pictures of a, a woman who, who was being sort of carried out um, on the shoulders of, of a couple of her colleagues and she she collapsed. And um, I um, it was actually the first time, you know, I, I haven't been doing this all that long, but it was the first time I'd been 
faced with this, um, you know, this conundrum that is talked about ad nauseum um, amongst you know, uh, conflict photographers and whatnot um, of whether to to work or help. And um, you know, the, I think um, it, as most people who have been um, in this position, I think it it came fairly instinctively to, to me to. You know, it was a very minor um, act, you know, helping to lift this woman into a, um, a, an awaiting uh, a police car, I think it was, police vehicle. And, um, you know, that happened on a couple of occasions there. Um, and I, it was kind of, um, I guess in a way it, it um, makes your presence there, which can be quite jarring to, to those um, on the scene, more palatable. So it's, I mean, admittedly, it's probably um, partly a humanistic act, partly a pragmatic one. And, and maybe it um, allows you to, to spend, you know, to, to, to be there, you know, for a couple of minutes longer. Um, eventually, you know, this one uh, NDS guy um, who, you know, already told me several times to, to piss off. Um, you know, he just came marching at me with his, his rifle cocked, um, and like grabbed me by the arm and he, he started to drag me, um, you know, I got the feeling he was trying to you know, arrest me or whatever, um, whatever he could have done, you know, lock me up temporarily. So, but I, um, you know, I kind of convinced him to, to let me go and, and showed him that I was, I was walking away. And I, I realized that that was the point that I couldn't, um, you know, the, the jig was up and I had to move on. So I headed back to the hospital, um, just a couple of blocks away and, and, um, really just watched the, um, the flood of injured coming in, you know, one after the other, after the other, um, until about 15 minutes in the hospital, um, stopped taking patients. They were, they were full. Um, I, I saw probably three or four, um, of the injured, um, who had, who had already succumbed to their injuries and were pretty obviously dead on arrival. As is often the case for me now, um, I was conscious of, uh, posting a photo to Instagram, which, um, is probably something anathema to, um, anyone, but you, you're more, um, I guess either your younger generation of, um, journalists, listening, um, or, or the more, um, I guess, technically savvy. Um, but I, yeah, as I said, I, um, as is often the case, I, I was focused on posting something to Instagram, um, to one, get the information out there and two, to let it know, let it be known that I had pictures and I, I had, um, um, you know, reporting to contribute to um, anyone who wanted it. So I was, um, I was pretty fastidious about the, the, the caption that I, um, that I wrote to go with a picture from the scene. And, um, in the, you know, in the, in the hours that followed, I, I started getting calls from, uh, like CNN and, um, ABC in Australia, where I'm from, um, uh, to do, to do, um, you know, live crosses and, and radio interviews and the like. Um, and at the same time I was, I was reaching out to my, um, my photo editor uh, colleagues, mostly in New York, um, 
to see if anyone was interested in, in um, taking the pictures that I got that morning. Um, eventually, um, the New York Times said they'd take the pictures. Um, so I, uh, for the rest of the afternoon, I was, uh, I was both, you know, filing these pictures um, and keeping an eye on what was going on as well as um, doing, you know, radio interviews and, and, and um, you know, Skype interviews for, for TV. Um, later in the afternoon, I, um, once I'd done, once I'd filed, I went back to, um, I, I got on my uh, motorbike and um, headed back to the scene, which was um, surprisingly uh, easy, easy to access. Um, and um, not locked down as I had expected it to be. Um, I stayed there until uh, seven o'clock, you know, after sunset photographing, um, and then um, linked up with a, a colleague of mine, also a housemate, um, Suna Rasmussen, who's a uh, the journal, uh, sorry, the, the uh, Guardian correspondent here. Um, we um, once we'd finished up there, we headed back to <clears throat> excuse me, our, um, we headed back to the hospital emergency hospital, um, to see, um, you know, how they were faring and to speak with some of the, the victims. Um, and, um, after that, I think we were, um, yeah, got home at about 9 PM. Um, I was filing my second round of pictures and, um, you know, that sort of went well into the night. <clears throat> I had a couple more interviews on radio in, at, at midnight, um, you know, due to the, the time difference here. Um, and, and, um, you know, worked well into the morning. Um, one of my colleagues, um, who was close to the, whose bureau is close, um, was basically given no other option by her, her managers in New York, but to leave. Um, and she was, this is something that was incredibly upsetting for her. I think, um, she knew that at one point, you know, she would leave Afghanistan and, um, she would leave behind her Afghan, Afghan colleagues, um, with whom she's become, you know, very close and, um, has a lot of empathy for. And I think it's something we're all faced with this, um, the, the fact that we can leave whenever we want. Um, and we're always going to leave behind friends and colleagues. Um, and for it to happen, to her under these circumstances, um, in, you know, in such a hurry was, was pretty devastating. Um, I've, uh, since then, and since the incidents that have followed the blast, um, those being a, uh, protest two days later, which ended up in, um, several people being shot and killed by police and a funeral the day after that for one of those victims, which was, uh, targeted by three suicide bombers. Um, a number of other friends and colleagues here have been, um, pulled out, um, you know, either temporarily or permanently evacuated to either Dubai or, or elsewhere. It does make me more determined to continue covering this. Um, the day after the, the bomb, I had already, um, made arrangements to, do a trip outside Kabul, um, to a place uh, in the, in central Afghanistan where there's, 
you know, uh, it's a province called Bamiyan, which anyone who knows Afghanistan will know is is um, well known as the the safest um, part of Afghanistan. You know, kind of a, an oasis. And um, you know, I felt very estranged from what was going in Kabul being there, but um, you know, there'd been expensive flights booked and a lot of logistics arranged. So, um, and, we, and we didn't really anticipate the events that followed um, the the bombing on the 31st. Um, but being outside Kabul and, and hearing about, um, first of all, the, the protests that turned violent and, and ultimately deadly, and then the, the bombings the, the day that followed um, really made me realise that I needed to be in Kabul. And, and I suppose once I got back here, as tense as the situation was and as, um, as, as unsettling as it was and as... as um, much doubt as it put in me and my colleagues' minds about, um, you know, the risks associated with being here. Um, I felt as though I had to be here. Um, and so, I mean, going forward, I, I think, um, you know, these, these flare-ups in the, the situation, um, you know, it's, it's, more often than, than not, um, the security situation um, happen you know, kind of on an annual basis where the tension really peaks and, um, you know, foreigners start getting evacuated and, and um, the streets are quiet and, um, you know, there's that palpable sense of foreboding and um, concern about, about the, you know, the immediate future and um, what's to happen, how the government's going to respond and how the, how the people are going to respond to the government's action or inaction. Um, but I'm, for the time being, I, I feel like, um, you know, the, Afghanistan is probably as much in the spotlight as it has been um, in, in recent years, certainly since um, the elections of 2014. I think the... Um, decision by the U.S. government about, or the pending decision by the U.S. government about um, redeploying troops here or redeploying more troops here um, will focus world attention um, back, off, back on Afghanistan to an extent. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's a um, relatively um, small number of um, international media personnel here and um, I think to an extent, I, I firstly, uh, you know, feel personally um, invested in the place. Um, and secondly, I, I think on a, you know, purely um, professional level, I, you know, it, it's, it's the place I need to be at the moment and that would be... Um, silly for me to leave. I mean, while, while there's, um, this uptick in interest. So for the time being, I'm, I'm here. That's all for this week. If you want to check out some of Andrew's reporting, you can find us online at detourspodcast.com forward slash episodes. Rest assured, we'll be back again next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Bill Wheeler, signing off.